This film is a fucking mess. Radio Drone. It is a Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley, and they're here. By there, of course, I mean Cecil T. Carolyn, Carolyn. That's two. Carolyn. And Peter's doing it too. See how many times we say Carolyn in this goddamn episode. But then we've got a special guest with us. Mike, are you going to say Carolyn? Not just yet. I'm saving it. Do you know what you don't save though? Is say you don't save going to adamandeve.com. You save when you go to adamandeve.com. You use the promo code DROME and you get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. And we promise there'll probably not be any poltergeists there. We're going to talk poltergeist tonight. The franchise, which goes on a little longer than most people realize it does, we'll get into that. With the new remake, which looks terrible, none of us have seen it because it doesn't open until next week, coming out, this is a perfect time to revisit one of the most, one of the strangest franchises out there. Because most people remember the first film, and then they go, how many sequels were there? Before we get into each individual film, what do you think of the franchise as a whole? <laughs> If I had to describe it in one word, it would be uneven. It's, yeah. There's a reason why people don't necessarily know of the other films. I didn't, wasn't aware that there was a television show whatsoever. Four Um, seasons, Mike. Oh my God. That's just crazy. That is, oh, wow. But uh, yeah, I personally, I gave up after two and I didn't even, I, I think I knew that there was a three, but I hadn't seen it until just a couple weeks ago. I, I agree. It, it is kind of uh, uneven. Um, and in, uh, I'll, I'll say that in terms of uh, it starts out very strong. First one, obviously, uh, a classic. Uh, one of those movies that uh, looking back on Toby Hooper's career, like at least in my opinion, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it's Poltergeist. Those would be his two most solid movies, at least uh, if you were to ask me. And then Poltergeist 2 is kind of weird. And that's a um, good summer, uh, summary for it. It's, it's a weird film. Uh, kind of uh, forgettable as well. And then the third one was surprisingly solid uh, a lot more solid than i actually remember it being so yeah it's uh, kind of um you go up then you plummet downward very very far and then yeah you go up again a bit and then yeah the series is uh, i actually remember the series not not very fondly to, to be perfectly honest but uh yeah the first poltergeist is one of the scariest movies ever it's a movie that is just simply amazing uh it still creeps me out to this day uh mostly because i just i hate ghosts it takes uh, quite a dive after that. Like the first one is just seriously one of the best movies ever. And then the sequel is like a major drop off. It's not a terrible movie, but it's just by comparison to the first one, it's like, like if maybe if the first one didn't exist, you know, it wouldn't be really looked at as that bad. It's, it's not, it's, it's not awful. It's just kind of, mm, it's, it's okay. And then the third one, I, I liked. I liked the the concept of it. It was it was it was a little better, 
it's just uh, I, I like that they moved into the high rise and all that. And then uh, as far as the series goes, I only really saw a couple of random episodes here and there. And it seemed more it was just a in name only TV series. So the way I look at the franchise is this didn't need to be a franchise, but I, I got to agree with Mike and Peter in this, that it's very uneven. But like Peter said, after the severe drop off with two, it does try to climb back up with three. Let's start with 1982's Poltergeist. The film ostensibly is directed by Toby Hooper. There are debates on how much he actually directed in this. It's produced and co-written by Steven Spielberg, uncredited, and made by MGM. Now, at the same time, Spielberg is making E.T., so that's why he can't officially direct this film. Numerous stories from the set say... While Toby Hooper was picking camera angles and whatnot, Spielberg had the final say. At one point, the special effects guys said they actually bypassed Toby Hooper because everything he okayed, Spielberg then shot down and just started bringing special effects ideas and things straight to Spielberg. You knew mm. that could not have sat well with Toby Hooper. But mm -hmm. the first film is a fantastic film. It's one of the most genuinely scary films. Just watching it last week, I still got goosebumps at that, that goddamn creature in the hallway that attacks Joe Beth Williams when she's in her panties and the hockey jersey. That goddamn tree. Because when I first saw Poltergeist, I saw it the night it debuted on HBO. It was raining, and I had a tree outside my window. <laughs> so, yeah, that combination after watching this movie, I did not sleep for a day or two. I don't know what my mom was thinking, but I saw this thing in theaters. Well, I guess it was, what, PG at it, the time? Well, originally, this was rated R, but then they got it bargained down to a PG, a PG since PG-13 wouldn't exist for two more years. So I'm 10 years old when I see this the first time. Obviously, it scared the f*** out of me. I mean, that was crazy. And there are scenes that I still can't watch today. The guy peeling the skin off his face... I still have to look away. I've never actually seen that scene. I, how the about the through. hallway monster with Joe Beth Williams? The hallway monster, I love. that. The pacing and when that hallway monster shows up is just beautiful. Because you think that things can't get any crazier than they are. And then mm -hmm. when that manifestation of the poltergeist happens... Otherwise, like you're not necessarily seeing like physical forms too often. You know, you see the face in the in the closet, this kind of stuff. But like that's a fully realized creature, and just the way it's designed and everything, it's like, oh mm. my god, this is crazy. <laughs> so, and just the pacing of the movie. I mean, to go from you know the where we're at at the beginning with the te television and all that, and then kind of the fun times with Carol Ann scooting across the floor. I mean, yeah, oh, it, it stacks chairs. This is delightful. This is kind of funny. That you is know. also a creepy-ass scene, because this is definitely a Toby Hooper shot scene. The camera doesn't cut. Hands over to follow Joe Beth Williams, and then it follows her back, and the chairs are there. You tell me the first time you saw that, you didn't jump to the ceiling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it plays on all kinds of childhood fears and adult fears i mean the clown the tree so many things and again with the pacing i mean just having you know the little kid counting the th you know the thunderclap after the the lightning and all that i mean just amazing and just him getting more and more frantic just such great stuff and it really it surprisingly holds up like i was afraid when i went back to watch this one just a couple years ago and then again for the show i was like oh i remember it being fantastic 
sarcastic, but that's coming from someone, you know, I know that I saw it when I was in my teens and stuff, but, you know, there was a good 20 years where I hadn't seen the film. And I was like, well, maybe I overestimate this movie. But fortunately, it really stays with you and it really still packs a punch. That fucking clown. <laughs> that <laughs> clown. Are, you, are, are you referring to where the arms wrap around Robbie's neck? Oh, yeah. And that tree, like, I think that tree could be, a lot could be said about that, because I think the people who saw that movie when, when they were young, I think that manifested that whole fear of something outside your window. Like, if you had a tree, as as Josh was saying the first time, first time you saw it, you were freaked out by the tree outside your window. I think that really brought upon that fear of something scraping up against your window. Like, like people saw that and, and started getting freaked out by that, and... um the whole thing is great that monster in in the hallway and then the direction and i just i love how there are certain moments in the film where it's you can kind of tell something is spielberg and you can kind of tell that something is is toby toby hooper the Um, spirits coming down the stairs and and on the video camera that is totally mm -hmm. spielberg absolutely it really has that vibe to it and then of course you have the the corpses that are that are coming out of the ground which is very toby hooper especially um wasn't it the trivia that they were actual corpses used in the scene real skeletons because they were actually cheaper to buy than the plastic ones what does that say about the quality of life right so that's like that kind of gives you a bit of a, a bit of a toby hooper raw kind of texas chainsaw massacre vibe and and the face peeling scene is just that that still to this day for me is is one of the most gruesome moments in in a film like in a horror movie that's like meant to mostly be like like a ghost uh, story kind of thing and then you just get this like gruesome scene of just flesh and and which is actually a Spielberg directed scene away. those are Spielberg's hands pulling the face off literally oh god he's in that scene and directing it and that's surprising to me that that's Spielberg because to me that was like much more of a like a visceral Toby Hooper Hooper kind of scene. But I I love it. Just the whole movie from start to finish has just just an amazing vibe to it, and it really it sticks with you. Uh, that's the thing, as Mike was saying, it really does. It holds up absolutely perfectly well. Uh, you watch it and it's awesome, and you go you can go back like 15, 20 years later, watch it again, and it's still the same. Just incredible film. Like I love Poltergeist. Like I said uh, when I started, I mean, the the first movie, it it was just amazing. I don't remember exactly when I see it, but when I first saw it, but I know that I was way too young to actually be watching it. That sounds Um, like it's the case with all of us. We should not have been watching this movie. Yeah, I I was at least six or seven. Yeah, I I think I was in single digits at the time. And uh, yeah, I I should not have been seeing that movie. The the thing that does crack me up, though, a lot of people are, are freaked out by the clown. The clown never bothered me. The clown, I guess, because uh, I know the clown is one of those things that just freaks people out. That I actually thought was more funny than anything. I, I uh, know the, I know what freaked you out. Incredible Hulk riding a horse flying around the room. Oh, God. When they open the door and the lamp is flying by and the, the, the light bulb screws in. And like, cause when that was the just so freaky. The re- oh God! No, it's not even a record player. It's it's a it's a compass touching the record right. and somehow making music. Right, oh, yeah. right. Well, that was great because it was so it was set up so perfectly because the uh, the ghost hunter was like, we're filming this car and it moved across the room, you know, and it took, you know, several hours or whatever. And they're like, oh, that's nice. And they open a door and just hell is breaking loose. It was so great. 
the the tree did get me. The the tree freaked me out. And uh, the chair scene, we talked about that before, about how just, you know, pans away, comes back, boom, all the chairs are sitting up on the table. Perfect example of how to properly do a boo scare or a jump scare, but it's not like, you know, a cat jumping out of a closet or something. That was an unexpected, holy shit moment. Yeah, just uh, so good. And the uh, when the wife is in the pool and all the, the corpses are coming out, that had a very Spielberg feel to it. A very kind of, uh, you know, Indiana Jones type vibe to it. Just the, the way that it was shot. Oh, man, I just adore the movie. It's so freaking creepy and weird. I, I've, I watched it uh, maybe a, a year ago was the last time I watched it and still absolutely holds up. Practical effects are amazing. The, the scares are, are just creepy as hell. The, the, that spirit in the hallway is just one of the most amazing like puppetry mixed with optical effects ever. It just still looks terrifying. I personally love the idea of the bi-location. When they throw the rope and the tennis balls through, and then mm-hmm. the black guy is pulling on the rope, and then Carol Ann and Diane come falling through, and they're all covered in that ectoplasm. I'm like, mm-hmm. that is just fantastic. Because mm-hmm. it looks, I guess I can't say realistic because we don't know what that would really look like, but about <laughs> as realistic as you would imagine it would. And yeah. that's 1982. Yeah. Their bodies like thumping on the floor. I mean, just oh, so many memorable shots in that film. Or the, the whatever mm-hmm. that bites the guy who t- ends up tearing his face off. Oh, yeah. When he picks up his shirt and there's those giant teeth marks of something in his side. <laughs> oh. It was like, and- oh. The thing that gets me, though, and I'm OK, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the the remake is probably going to cost at least three to four times that. And it's going to look like garbage by comparison. I mean, because because if the shots in the trailer are any indication, it's nothing but like CGI scares. Uh, there's no like gen- there's not going to be any genuine scares. They're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of people. Oh, my God, it's so terrifying. And it's just not not to go off on a tangent about the about the remake. But, you know, it, it, that's just um, that's just my bias showing. I, I don't think the remake is going to be anything remotely good. I don't know how many times they say Carol Ann in these movies. All three of these <laughs> are Carol Ann. Carol, the villains say Carol Ann because we get a villain for parts two and or th- two and three. The villain yeah. says Carol Ann constantly. The parents are constantly saying it. The other actors are saying it. It's like, okay, we get it. Her name's Carol Ann. Now, a, a piece of weird trivia here. Carol Ann was almost not played by Heather O'Rourke. Drew Barrymore auditioned for that role. Spielberg liked her, but he didn't quite think she was right for that, so he cast her in the other movie he was making, E.T. Probably was a was a good move on her for her career. But I gotta say, this definitely stands for especially part three. Heather O'Rourke, in this film, she's five years old. She gives a hell of a performance. Mm-hmm. She is really good. And then she gives a fantastic for a fantastic performance in the third film that if she had not died from a bowel obstruction. I think Heather O'Rourke would have been a force to reckon with in Hollywood because she was a seriously good actress. This film made a ton of money at the box office. It This thing grabbed pop culture. And there here became a goddamn catchphrase. So inevitably a sequel was going to happen. They started on a sequel right away. The same writers came back. This time Spielberg did not. Toby Hooper did not because... Toby Hooper, you'll notice he and Spielberg never worked together again. 
because <laughs> at Spielberg's insistence, although he claims this was the studio doing it, Hooper claims it was Spielberg that ordered it, go and re- rewatch the very first trailer for this movie. Steven Spielberg presents a Steven Spielberg film, Poltergeist. Only <laughs> in the little text at the end can you see directed by Toby Hooper. You hear stories over the years and all this kind of stuff, and I don't know necessarily who to believe. And of course, Hooper's going to paint himself in the best light, and he's like, oh, no, 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 it, it's all me. But there are so many scenes that just do feel like they are so Spielberg. And then to Cecil's point, as far as, like, he's was capable of directing so many different styles at the particular time. He, and he, he still can these days, but it's generally more you know, drama kind of stuff or light comedy, you know, rather than with the exception of like something like a Munich or Amistad. But then you get those horrifying moments in Raiders of the Lost Ark, like with Marion in the Well of the Souls. So it's like, okay, he's capable of doing this stuff. So that kind of throws everything up in the air. It's like, was he capable of directing everything in Poltergeist? Yes. Was Toby Hooper capable of directing everything in poltergeist i'm not really sure because like right after this he does life force and (laughs) you know it's not the best directed film in the world i won't say poltergeist is the best directed film in the world but it feels like it feels like it was written by two authors you know you get the idea that there was i don't want to say collaboration because it doesn't sound like that it sounds more like a rivalry but it definitely feels like there were two people working on it which how much was Spielberg? How much was Hooper? I'm not sure what the p- percentages are, but I would definitely say that Spielberg had his hands in it more than just being a director, more than just being a producer. And, you know, this was that time when Spielberg was a, a brand name. You know, he had could do no wrong at this particular point in his career. I mean, you look back at some of the other films that, you know, Steven Spielberg presents and it's like, Okay, who was that? Who who directed this movie? Was it as you know? It's like there were times where it's like, well, did Spielberg direct Gremlins? I'm you know eight, uh, twelve years old. It's like his name's all over this thing. He was the franchise, <laughs> you know. He was the guy that you know when his name was on a movie, you're gonna get you know the box office. So it's like, oh, what did he do? Goonies? What? I, yeah, so hey, actually, Mike, to your point, Joe Beth Williams was not interested in the movie until she knew Spielberg was producing it. She initially got the script and said, I don't want to do a horror film. And then her agent said, it's produced by Steven Spielberg. She said, oh, so yeah. that, that directly goes to your point. Yeah, I don't think that some of those movies would get made unless he was behind it. Well, it definitely sounds like Hooper was uh, muscled a fair bit. Spielberg took control of a lot of scenes and uh, definitely added his spin to the film his own elements but i i definitely feel a, a hooper presence there and and i think he does deserve uh some credit even though uh as as mike pointed out he did go on to direct things like uh life force and i'm a i'm a fan of that movie i i love life force but um it, it's kind of like if you look at uh hooper's career um his, his track record of movies after uh you know chainsaw massacre after poltergeist uh they're not the best movies it, it, it almost kind of feels like he maybe hit a hit a stroke of fluke luck when he uh, had to work with a very uh, minuscule budget, and then when he actually had had money to work with, not the best movies. But uh, I I do give um, Hooper credit because I can definitely feel him in certain scenes, and you can definitely feel Spielberg in certain scenes as well. And it uh, it to to Hooper's credit, it sounds like he was um, it was kind of muscle Spielberg and his uh, 
his presence because everybody wanted to work with the guy. Um, everybody knew his uh, his reputation and how good he was. So it was probably very easy for him to step in and go, nah, you know, we're going to we're going to refilm this like this. And uh, nobody could really bat an eye to that because <laughs> it's fucking Steven Spielberg. This whole thing kind of reminds me of uh, when the movie Hero, uh, the Jet Li movie came out and it was Quentin Tarantino presents Hero. Like they plastered that all over the place and walking out of the theater, there were a couple of guys that were like, wow, Tarantino can make any kind of movie. It's like, oh, no, Tarantino didn't direct that one. He just kind of was the uh, the fuel behind getting that released in the U.S. And he did that with a bunch of movies. <laughs> he was essentially uh, the distributor on that one. Yeah, but they plastered his name all over it. And they did that with um, uh, Tim Burton's another one that they love to put his name all over it. I so mean, I don't many know people think he directed, they Nightmare, directed Before Nightmare Before Christmas. It's like, no, Henry Selleck did. What? Uh, and it's like, no, that was a Tim Burton movie. It's like, no, you got to give give the guy freaking his credit, you know. But yeah. uh, with going to Poltergeist, uh, having Spielberg's name attached to it definitely gives it that extra element of of uh credence because i mean we know who toby hooper is but there are a lot of people in general who have no idea who that is and so you know having toby hooper's poltergeist wouldn't have as much weight behind it as steven spielberg's poltergeist now whether or not spielberg directed the whole thing or armchair directed it uh it does definitely have moments where it feels more like a Spielberg movie than a Toby Hooper movie. So uh, I would probably say it's somewhere about like maybe 60-40, where it's 60 Spielberg, because there were probably <laughs> scenes where Hooper was, you know, setting things up and then Spielberg kind of muscled in and, you know, maybe changed a little bit here, changed a little bit there, made it a little bit more of the way that he wanted it to. The the thing that that's kind of crazy is it sucks that that happened, but the end result is amazing. Yeah. So... I almost kind of am glad that it did because it, it I mean, who knows? Maybe if um, Toby Hooper was completely in charge, it may not have turned out as well as it could. It's one of those like, you know, who knows how it would have. I'm, it probably would have been good because I, I, I think that Toby Hooper is is great. I've loved almost all of his movies, but uh, you haven't I seen Spontaneous Combustion then. I, that's I said almost all. <laughs> I didn't say all. But uh, and no, I, I have not seen uh, spontaneous combustion. But uh, so I, I think that it was probably, a, you know, more than half was was Spielberg. Inevitably, they were going to make a sequel. Well, that sequel didn't come until 1986 when Poltergeist to the other side was released. Now, Mike, you and I were talking privately about this, and I'm going to quote you because I think you summed it up perfectly. This film is a fucking mess. <laughs> Because it, you are 100% right. This film is a complete mess. There are reasons for it. Some of those reasons are directly at the feet of director Brian Gibson. Some of them are not. For one thing, prior to this, Brian Gibson had only directed a couple of documentaries and a small TV movie for the BBC about punk rock. So I don't know if he was the right man to do this, but he seemed to go in with the same arrogance that John Borman went into Exorcist 2 with. <laughs> I don't want to make the same film again. I want to take this into another direction. That's ex almost exactly what John Borman said about Exorcist 2. 
you get the feeling watching Poltergeist 2 the other side that Gibson absolutely does not want to make a horror film. Mm -hmm. He wants to make a spiritual Native American film about love conquering all. And the horror elements are just sprinkled throughout like he had to put them in there. But you really get the feeling he did not want to make a horror film. And I'll get into why it's such a mess later. But for right now, I was really excited about two because the first one was so good and I was still relatively young. I I didn't know that like uh, different directors and whatnot was going to go into something. So when I went into Poltergeist 2, I was expecting more of Poltergeist 1. So then, you know, because it had uh, almost the entire original cast, with the exception of, you know, Dunn, who unfortunately got murdered, it, it I I was reared up. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And the practical effects were just not as good. Uh, I I want to point out this film, which I agree with you, has terrible, terrible effects. Maybe just because I'm seeing them on DVD, they don't hold up. The effects are bad. Academy Award nominated. (laughs) Wow, really? I was shocked when I read that because when my wife and I were rewatching this, we were both marveling at how obvious the matte lines and whatnot are and this thing got nominated for best special effects wow it must have been a slow year or something because they were noticeably bad and and i i usually (laughs) will err in favor of practicals but yeah the 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 lines and everything were just i mean the green screen work and everything or actually back then it would have been blue screen was just so blatantly obvious it just it stuck out like a sore thumb I'm on the fence as to whether or not uh, the old guy was creepy because uh, he did he did have the right look. Julian Beck it, was creepy, and he was actually dying at the time of stomach cancer. That's oh, why man. he was so creepy and gaunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he did like his eyes were sunken back into his head, and uh, it did it it had a little bit of a Children of the Corn vibe to it. It didn't scare me, like you said. It it, it was like he was trying to not make a horror film. I didn't hate it. I I really thought it was just like, OK, I am curious, though, because there is supposed to be the original cut was one hundred and thirty one minutes and it fills in. All I, I, of... I'll, I'll talk about all of that in a little bit. I've got a lot of background on this about oh, okay. why it's the, the mess that it is, why it's mm. so why it's ninety one minutes and not one hundred and thirty one. I mean, that's a, a monstrous chop out of the film. Mm-hmm. And it, you I, can I'll tell... go into that after I talk to yeah. Peter and Mike. OK, because it does. It just feels empty at points. Yeah, it uh, it it was a major, major drop off from the original. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I was the guy who you quoted before about it being a major mess. When I saw it when I was 14 at the theater, it was a mess then. You know, there were, it was so uneven and that weird kind of blending of Native American mysticism. So the original house was built on an Indian graveyard. All right, I got that. You moved the tombstones, you didn't move the bodies. Okay, you know, well, first I thought it was just a graveyard. Now it's an Indian graveyard, but no, there's something buried underneath the graveyard. <laughs> it's just like, wait, what is going on? How many layers and, and, deep and are I want to point go? out, it was not an Indian graveyard in the first one. Remember, there were watches from the '70s and yes, stuff like okay. that. Thank it was you. not an Indian graveyard in the first film. Yeah, <laughs> because most Indian graveyards don't have headstones. I would think it would just be buried under the ground. And those were very modern coffins popping up at the end too. So you're you've got now this 
Native American stuff kind of grafted onto it. Plus this like Jim Jones, Heaven's Gate suicide cult kind of thing going on. And it's like, this is a bridge too far. This just is one too many things for me to be able to bite off. And now the ghosts are chasing them. And then you have the whole thing with uh, Joe Beth Williams's mother. And it's just like, what is happening with this stuff? I mean, just, it was too much. It just went in way too many directions. And really when I was trying to remember how this thing ends, I was like, there seems like there's a point where Julian Beck's character just disappears for a while. It's like, he kind of comes back with that wormy monster thing like it kind of looks like him the guy who doesn't have any legs you know crawling out of the room but really it feels like he just goes away and as far as is he scary or not just wanted to say that i remember an mtv special where they were interviewing the members of anthrax of all people and they were talking about their favorite horror movies and they showed the scene of him outside the screen door shouting you're gonna die out in there and when he raises his finger up to his head I remember Scotty and being like, look at that, man. Even his finger's scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, um, the, the thing with Julian Beck was he died right after he made this movie. He never got to see a rough cut of it. He died right after filming. And he was also set up to be a big, bad, recurring villain on Miami Vice. And then when he died, they just dropped his character. And even though it's, it, it was almost the entire season two premiere was set up as we're laying all the groundwork for this thing. Julian Beck's dead. All right, his character, we're just never going to mention it again on Miami Vice. It really is a mess, like undoubtedly. I mean, there's not really much I could add to uh, to what Mike said. I think he um, covered it all pretty well. Uh, there's a couple of standout moments. Uh, the, the whole tequila worm monster thing is uh, kind of an interesting concept. And then the, the, big, uh, the big ghost monster at the end just kind of looks like a blue screen blob. This doesn't look great. It's just just what Cecil said about it. When Mike said about it, it really covers it. Yeah, the the, the um the old uh, the old sunken eyed dude is definitely something that stands out as well as uh, I think that that kind of made just little elements of of Poltergeist two made it stand out as more of a classic than it really is. Just certain visual elements and certain things that people remember. Um, they probably remember it being a lot better than it really is. I kind of I didn't remember it being better than it was. I remembered it not being as bad as it was. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's like, was it really that bad? And it's like, yeah, it yeah, was. it was. Because <laughs> yeah, th- there there was one moment I really loved about this film when they're arguing with their insurance company over what happened to the house in the first film. That because mm-hmm. the house was not technically destroyed, it's only missing, so their homeowner's insurance won't pay off. I thought that <laughs> was really witty, actually. That was pretty funny, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, there's um, there's little moments here and there that like that kind of make you remember it fondly. You're like, ah, the 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 tequila thing, the 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 old scary guy, the that joke that that you mentioned. It's like it seems like um, you look back on it, it's like, was it really that bad? Was it a bad movie? Then you watch it, and it's like, yeah, absolutely. This this stunk. Well, and see, part of my problem was that this whole movie is trying to explain things from the first film that didn't need explanation. Now we find out that not only is Diane a psychic who has turned her gift off, but Carol Ann is a psychic now, too. And the (laughs) the grandmother has been a psychic. And I guess, you know, we don't know that she has a sister yet at this point. So we'll 
Trish we won't meet till the third film, I guess would be a psychic too. You've you've got the whole over-explaining now, as Mike pointed out, now it's an Indian burial ground, and then there's <laughs> another burial ground underneath that because of a because of a crazy preacher cult. Cecil pointed out how long this movie originally was. Now, I don't know exactly what cuts were made at what point, but there are numerous confirmed deleted scenes. The second editor came in. He, the movie had already been shorn of 17 minutes when he got it, and he was told you need to dump 15 more minutes out of this thing. For some reason, MGM was determined to get the runtime down to 90 minutes, pacing and plot be damned. So he had to get rid of 15 more minutes after 17 minutes had already been sliced out of the movie. Some of the notable deleted scenes. Remember how Taylor said that the Freeling's car was very angry? That wasn't the only angry product that they had. There's a scene where there are production stills of it. Steven cannot put toast into the toaster. It keeps flying across the room to avoid him, and it flies into Joe Beth Williams' arms, and only she can put toast in, and Taylor goes, toaster, very angry, too. And then, and then he goes, fine, I just like cold bread, I guess. And you go, <laughs> okay, that might have been a funny scene, but it's pointless, so you don't really yeah. need it. Probably the biggest deleted scene would have to be Kane's origin. Remember how they have those that quick, maybe 20-second shot when Tangina's given the giant exposition dump, and you see them all in old-timey clothes on horseback going through that old town to go to the, to the hole? Mm-hmm. That was a full eight-minute sequence that took place oh, in wow. the past where, remember how Kane remembered that, oh, Taylor, that's what he's calling himself these days? And it's just, you're just, just kind of glossed over. Taylor was a member of Kane's cult, but when he saw the pleasure Kane was getting out of abusing his followers, he realized that Kane was lying and left him. But because of the evil he had committed, he was damned to hell. And so him battling Kane is all about him trying to win his soul back. Is any of that necessary? All of that was shot. Is any of that necessary? No. And, and then there are, there are other scenes. Clearly this scene was shot. Remember how Carol Ann had the red phone where she first started talking to them? There's a scene. It only appears on the back of the British VHS box for this. There's a dream sequence where Kane is trying to pull Carol Ann in through the phone receiver. That scene doesn't appear in any print of the film but was clearly shot. And Mm -hmm. then there is a different ending where they battle the demon with a baseball bat instead of a spear. Then Mm -hmm. there are three other deleted scenes, including one where they explain where Dominic Dunn is away at college. Otherwise, she just doesn't appear in this film anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think with all of that combined, that's why this movie is a goddamn mess. You, you had a director who didn't want to make a horror film. You had editors that were constantly being told to take things out. And then you had the special effects, which were horrendous. Like, everyone remembers the tequila vomit monster. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else notice that the footage was obviously sped up as he was puking it out? Why? <laughs> they couldn't get the effect to work right. So they just sped it up in post-production. And, and then there was one shot that I actually turned to my wife and I'm like, that could not have been in the final film. There's no way we just saw that. When they front Taylor out by their car after they have the little encounter in the restaurant, you can see in the establishing shot, there is desert out there. They are so clearly having this scene on a set of a desert. Did anyone else <laughs> notice how awfully fake that set looked? Yeah, it was bad. I think by that time I kind of tuned out. Which is totally fair. Speaking of tuning out, so did audiences. 
This film, it still made its money back, but was not the runaway hit that they wanted. And who knows if the original actor that wanted to play Taylor would have given this more cachet. Originally, I wish I were making this up, Dennis Hopper campaigned to play Taylor. (laughs) Wow. Who knows what that would have done to the box office, either good or (laughs) bad, huh? No, you talked about the scene where they explain that Dominic Dunn's character is away at college. Isn't there a line in the film where it's just like you and your entire family have to fight this or something? And it's like, yeah, well, what about the girl who's not there? They need to go (laughs) find her. You and your entire family that just so happens to be here at the time. You have to fight it. All of the family that's in California, damn it. (laughs) Parts in this film came out, I guess, 3D was still a thing. The early special effects shots were done to incorporate 3D. That's why the chainsaw and there's a couple of other things that come right at the camera. Those were made to be in a 3D version of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they look yeah at... those were fairly obvious when I saw them. I was just like, okay, this is like a spear coming right at you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so it's like this film was just a disaster from the get-go. And like I said, audiences, they thought it was too. Critics destroyed the movie, as they should have. But then inevitably, they were going to make another one. So 1988 comes around. This time, the writers of the first two movies don't want to be involved. None of the cast wants to be involved anymore. Gary Sherman takes over and says, I I want to actually do what Gibson said he wanted to do. I really do want to take this into a different direction. Now, instead of suburbia, we're going to move this into the middle of urban Chicago in a modern high-tech high-rise. In the Hancock building. In the Hancock building, yes. Now, the the only one of the main cast members he could get back was Heather O'Rourke, who by this point is a teenager, and I thought she gave, the, she gave a fantastic performance in this film. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen are always good, but I thought Heather O'Rourke really was stealing this movie. MGM said we need at least one more cast member for a small role. He convinced Zelda Rubens... Ah, 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 ah that wasn't a pun. Role. I didn't even mean that. I didn't even mean that. He convinced Zelda Rubenstein on one condition. She pulled a Heston on Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'll only be in it if you kill me. This was the end of Tangina because that was the only way they could get Zelda Rubenstein back into this film. This time you've got the theme of mirrors and reflections and an alternate world and outside is in. Now Carol Ann is living with her aunt, really doesn't like her, and her aunt's family. Honestly, I thought Poltergeist 3 was a really strong film. I thought it was surprisingly well written, really well paced. And I only found this out after the fact. I was wondering how they were able to do so much with mirrors and not. And I I kept looking for the camera because almost all the effects in this movie were done on set. Mm-hmm. That the reflections you're seeing in the mirrors are actually the set built in reverse on the other side of clear glass. So those were not actually mirrors you were seeing that you were actually seeing another version of the set built in perfect reverse. And I thought, that ha- there's no way that was easy to do, but holy hell did it work. There are problems awesome. in the movie. Loved it. Poltergeist 3 is definitely a treat after uh, after having to sludge through the, the second one. It, it's one that I, I haven't seen as much as, uh, as the other two. Like, I know I've seen two... At least, um, at least a couple times over the years. One, I've seen a, a lot. Three, I think I've only seen like one other time. 
before this this episode and I, I watched it again um I just finished watching it today actually I really liked it I, I loved the whole thing uh, the thing to do with mirrors Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen are, are always awesome and and as you said little girl playing uh, Carol Ann Carol Ann Carol Ann Carol Ann was uh really good in this movie and uh, had she have lived on I think she definitely as you said would have been a, a force to have been reckoned with there's some very tense moments uh in Anybody, I think that uh, especially that lives in a high rise would would find this movie a little bit scarier than the uh, than the suburban uh, living audiences that would because I do I live in a I live in a high rise and uh, you know if you go down uh, to the to the garage area or to throw out the garbage and you know you're it's it's kind of it's pretty creepy especially after you just watched a ghost movie so that that setting is very good that cold kind of uh, desolate trapped up on the on the top floor kind of vibe. And also something I noticed about this movie that I didn't notice about the first time I watched it, it's extremely 80s. For an 80s movie, it's 80s. Like it, it features characters literally talking in the like totally, like totally, like red, like like the um. I think it's like the first 20 or 15 minutes into the movie where, where they're at the school and uh, the the older sister is talking with her friends and they're just ridiculous 80s stereotypes within the 80s and it, uh, it's kind of glorious i watched this for the first time just a few weeks ago so i was not familiar with it at all and i was really kind of delighted uh, like uh peter said especially after <laughs> seeing two the night before and i'm like oh god now i have to watch three very very pleasantly surprised it was uh really well done in a lot of respects really like the effects I like the whole idea of the that there's that one shot where it's like the multiple Reverend Canes come out of the doors and they're follow you know like looking at Carolina as she's going down the hallway mm. that really worked for me. It felt a little long in the tooth at the end and like the whole like magic necklace that they don't really explain and that kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll not... explain what the original ending was in a little bit. It's funny because. That was the thing I think I said to you earlier, like when we were talking about the movie, it's like, okay, I saw the movie and I remember it up to a point. I remember it up to the point in the parking garage with the the water and the ice and all this kind of stuff. But I really didn't remember the end of the movie at all. And then I just rewatched it today and I was like, okay, yeah, now I know why I didn't remember it. Because it just (laughs) kind of peters out right towards the end. No offense. Yeah. The third one, it cracked me up because there were a lot of people that were uh, saying about how two was bad, but three was even worse. And that, to me, says that you never saw three, did you? Yeah, because three (laughs) is surprising. Usually in a franchise, the third film is not better than the second. No. I thought that uh, I thought it was cool. I liked the fact that they uh, they went into the high rise, that they they kind of changed things up. I mean, that's a way to keep things fresh, you know, because it's uh, one of the things that always bothers me with a lot of sequels is that audiences get angry when you don't just do the same thing over and over again. But then if you do the same thing over and over again, then they bitch that you're doing the same thing over and over again. So uh, I like the fact that they took it out of suburbia and they went into the high rise and they went into location that really lended itself well to doing some creepy ass stuff. Because it was like, a real building, all those mirrors and everything. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. they built the, you know, the stuff that they needed to build. But he said that building was essentially, you know, for the most part, what they shot in. 
Yeah, the 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 all the uh, reverse shots and the you know the the Nancy Allen standing there and and the 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 um, the ghost turns around on her and like the frozen uh, her, parking the garage reflection. was cr- great. I loved the frozen parking garage. Yeah, the the effects were noticeably better over the second one, and it just it felt it felt more like a, a genuinely creepy movie. Um, again. Not necessarily, you know, not not anywhere in league with the first one, but it was good. It's a it's a cool movie and it's creepy and weird. Carol Ann does give a, a very, very good performance. You had uh, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle's first movie. She was real young in that. And uh, I, I, I dug it. I thought it was cool. I, I don't think that uh, people should be crapping on it much because there was um, uh, the DVD set. It was Poltergeist two and three, and there were people like, "Oh, they had to include three on there because nobody would have bought it." Well, l- let's talk a little bit about the ending. Now, this film didn't have nearly as much post production tinkering as the second film did. Did anyone else notice in the ending that's on the film? They rescue Donna, they rescue Carol Ann, and Trish rescues Bruce, but nobody bothers to rescue Scott. Did anyone ever? Did anyone notice that in the theatrical version, or was that just me? <laughs> Screw Scott. Scott, yeah. I guess, doesn't get to yeah. get rescued. Screw well, you, Scott. Nobody likes you. <laughs> originally, he did. Apparently, he got left on the cutting room floor. What happened was the studio did not like the original ending. Now, Heather O'Rourke is still alive at this point. The ending is more or less the same as what we get. But remember how Aunt Trish, the one who's actually related to Carol Ann, doesn't care about her and just basically is willing to sacrifice her to get Donna and Bruce back. In the original ending, it was the opposite, that Bruce, played by Tom Skerritt, the one who's not actually related to Carol Ann, loves her so much that he is his love is willing to defeat Kane. The studio didn't like that. They, they thought that Trish came across basically as a ball-busting bitch, which she kind of did until the end, where in the, she just has this abrupt change in the third act because of Tangina's necklace. So mm. they had to reshoot that. But at that point, Carol... Heather O'Rourke had succumbed to her bowel obstruction and died. So you'll notice in the theatrical cut, they never show Carol Ann's face after a certain point. Her her face is always buried in Nancy Allen's shoulder. Or she's got the little demon makeup where you can put another actress in there. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the original ending where it's her non-familial relation that loves her so much. Do you agree with the studio? Just having not actually seen the footage, but do you agree with the studio that Nancy Allen needed a redemptive moment? I don't know. Um, I was just not that invested. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she did come off as very, very cold when she was just like, hey, you know, I don't, it really didn't feel like she was a blood relation with Carol Ann. And just uh, there were a couple moments where I was just like, oh, wow, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, this is your niece here. Yeah, but then again, to just to be honest, it did ring a little true for me. It's just like, get this demon child out of here. <laughs> She's ruining yeah. our lives. Well, <laughs> to, to be fair, one thing I thought that this movie did brilliantly, even though the actor that played Dr. Seton wasn't the best actor, I loved how the movie painted him as a, the complete asshole that we are supposed to hate, but every single thing he does and says in this movie is the logical thing that we as the viewers know he's wrong because of the previous two films 
to just someone coming into this situation. Every single thing he does and says is the logical thing, and he's the asshole. I thought that was actually <laughs> kind of a ballsy way to take the script. On uh, the ending versus the uh, theatrical ending versus what was originally planned. Um, I, I mean, I, I can sort of see uh, why why they wanted to maybe uh, change it to to redeem her character a bit. I mean, she she did in in some inst- instances maybe come off as a bit of a bitch, like where um where she says like I have to be with her for two weeks, and it's like, well, you, you kind of get where she's coming from in that she knows um, what had happened uh, beforehand. And it's like being paranoid of uh, that, that maybe Carol Ann is going to start some shit again. And obviously not, not believing uh, the whole ghost thing, because even the school that Carol Ann is going to that school for gifted children, that professor or, or teacher dude or whatever is um, says stuff like how, uh, Carol Ann's gift is that she's able to manipulate people to to feel and sense and see what what she's seeing, and and that's what he truly believes. So maybe that's kind of where Nancy Allen is is coming from, whereas she she doesn't want to be manipulated into uh, into seeing things like that and 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 buying into that. Like maybe she she's a little reluctant reluctant. Like uh, that's what I kind of got from that is that maybe uh, she she didn't so much uh, hate. Caroline or was a bitch to her or anything, but just kind of kind of reluctant from the kid's track record. I, I mean, I think either way, it, it, the ending would have worked, whether if whether it was uh, Tom Skerritt um, kind of doing the martyr line or Nancy Allen. Uh, I think either way is fine because I, I didn't really see Nancy Allen as that much of a of a bitch, really reluctant maybe, but uh, not a bitch. Eh, not too much. I think they were. Most of it was just uh, they were posturing to set up for the sequel that never happened. Yeah, that that my, my biggest complaint would be the very last shot before the credits. They've defeated everything. Kane has gone into the light. Tangina's dead. She's gone into the light. And then they've gotten everyone back except for Scott because screw Scott. <laughs> then, they, then there's that big exterior of Chicago and then lightning strikes the building and you hear Kane going. <laughs> I'm like, OK, that shot was unnecessary. Audiences avoided this movie like it was a plague carrier. This movie did no box office at all. This movie lost money for the first time. MGM wasn't sure whether this was due to Heather O'Rourke's death. You know, they already had the release date set. They couldn't, they weren't going to push it back. Or if it was just people, like Cecil pointed out earlier, just for some reason did not like this movie. This one flopped hard. So no more Poltergeist movies. But then in the late 90s, Showtime decided they were already making a series called The Legacy, which is essentially the X-Files through time. A secret society is thrown, is pulled together to investigate paranormal phenomena and try to keep it out of the public light. So kind of the X-Files in a period setting. Because that was an MGM series and MGM had the rights to Poltergeist, they called it Poltergeist The Legacy. And I would say Cecil's right in it being an in-name only, but in season one they do name drop the Freeling incident in California as one of the cases they investigated. So I guess they're implying that Taylor and Tangina were part of the legacy. I didn't think much about it. I mean, it was just, <laughs> I it, I was hard pressed to really, I mean, the the opening scene is so annoying with the kid and arguing with the father and all and this And the terrible kind of special effects. And the, the accents were bothering me for some reason. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> so, yeah, it was like everything was just 
not happening for me with this thing. And then, yeah, skimming through it, I'm just like, okay, this feels like so many other failed pilots. So that's what really surprises me that this thing was picked up and ran for so many years just because I could really see this being one of those anomalous, like, hey, yeah, here's the pilot for this failed idea. And isn't that funny? But that it got picked up. It's like, you really got to be kidding me. Three seasons on Showtime and one season on Sci-Fi. Wow. And the, the Sci-Fi Channel season, season four, somebody got the bright idea. Well, USA Network and Sci-Fi are owned by the same company, Universal. WWE Raw is the most popular show in the history of cable. So season four had a bunch of wrestlers as escaped demons from hell that the legacy had to try and get back. <laughs> I'm not, I wish <laughs> I were kidding. You watched all this show, didn't you? I didn't watch all of this. I worked at a hotel at the time. You know how hotels in the 90s basically had, you had, you know, basic cable and one pay cable channel that they would always offer. Showtime was the pay cable channel that the hotel I worked at offered. And so on Saturday nights, when I'd go on my one-hour lunch break, it was usually right around the time a new episode of Legacy was on. So I would just kind of half watch it in the break room while reading a comic book and eating my lunch while working at a hotel. So... Kind of, Mike, I guess. <laughs> uh, I vaguely remember this show um, watching uh, kind of his background noise um, when I would either be doing homework or reading comics, not working at a hotel, just kind of TV would be on. I'd be waiting for something else to be on, so I'd be doing something else. Watching the pilot, which I had never seen before, um, one word, Drek. Just I didn't like it. Um, it was kind of a hard sit that those accents at the beginning, what the f- was that like the, the the weird CG skeleton thing, the the goofy skeleton? Are, are you um, saying that even having William Sadler and W. Shepard guest starring and Helen uh, Shaver didn't save this for you? I was actually going to mention William Sadler and say that he was the uh, highlight of it because it was kind of fun watching him be this uh, this ridiculous uh, demon possessed dude thing, and then he gets shot and like <laughs> the. The lights that like come out of his body, they're like really bad, <laughs> almost uh, season one of Sliders esque special effects that uh, that come out of his chest when he's being shot. Just wow, you know. After um, oh, to, to basically to say that I would I would probably rather watch uh, Poltergeist two than uh, than this again. I can uh, I can safely say I did not watch the pilot <laughs> and I didn't have cable when the show was on on Showtime. And uh, when it hit Sci-Fi Channel, just randomly would catch a, you know part of an episode here, part of an episode there. It was usually something else was coming on afterwards. So, so you I watch kinda, the last 20 minutes instead of yeah, watching something else. Right. Yeah. And I would just kind of throw that on because that's, you know, back in the days before TiVo and stuff. So it's like, all right, well, uh, this is coming on. So I'll just throw this on and, and watch this uh uh, while I'm playing with my Game Boy or something at the time while this is uh, yeah. going on. And uh, so I really, I don't remember much. Now we come to the remake. None of us have seen it. I think I, I think I can say no one was really looking forward to this movie. No one was really looking forward to a remake of Poltergeist. In all honesty, I would have rather had a fourth film. You probably could have gotten Joe Beth Williams or Craig T. Nelson back. You know, maybe now they're grandparents or something like that. I would have liked a fourth film that maybe showed now in the Internet age how Kane might be trying to to get at this family or whatnot. But 
a remake. She's not even Carol Ann in the in the remake. It, it seems like almost like a vague. Well, we were already going to make a movie that had a similar premise. We have the rights, so now it's a Poltergeist remake. That's what this the trailers and all the making ofs I've seen of the remake tell me. It looks like Boo Scare Central. I mean, again, we're going off of the trailer, and sometimes trailers are just bad. Sometimes the movie ends up being good. But this one, I don't know. Uh, from what I've seen of the trailer, it doesn't look too promising. It looks like just they copied some scenes from the original and they added a lot of just nonsense. And I feel really bad because it's got, oh Christ, now I forgot his name. Sam, uh, Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. It's got Sam Rockwell. I, know, I wish that man could find a good role. He's such a good actor who just takes yeah. one bad movie after another. Well, he, yeah. when, when he's on, he like, I mean, even in bad movies though, he's good is the thing. Mm. But, but this movie I don't know. I have I have no interest in seeing it. I know Hollywood was determined to make a uh, Poltergeist remake because this was one of those ones that they had been talking about forever. It was just, you know, Poltergeist movie remake. It's happening. And everyone was like, no, no one wants this. And then it just, <laughs> you know, well, it, uh, you know, they fell apart and they're not going to make it. And then like a year later, the Poltergeist remake. It's like no one wants this. The reason why they probably didn't do a fourth one was out of some weird honoring of Carol Ann. Like they didn't want to, they didn't want to do something without, uh, you know, Heather O'Rourke's character with, or replacing her that might've uh, been wrong. Uh, that's the only reason I could, I mean, well, not the only reason I think that um, they decided to not do it because of that, but also because right now in, in Hollywood's eyes, remakes are the thing. Well, here's this property and we'll, we'll just give it a new coat of paint. It'll make millions of dollars. And then it ends up failing miserably. So <laughs> uh, uh, the only, the wor the, the trailer I've seen worse than poltergeist as far as remakes lately is Josie and the pussycats, or I'm sorry, not Josie and the pussycats, uh, gem. No, see uh, that was Freudian right there. No, because actually, I like Josie and the Pussycats. I know, but yeah, it's, it's it, the, the Gem trailer is the same damn movie. Uh, no, the Gem trailer is not the same. Well, the Gem trailer is more uh, like like Josie and the Pussycats was actually a complete mockery the uh, of the the whole uh, American uh, record uh, you know recording uh, the RIAA and whatnot, and uh, Gem and the holograms is that plot, but done as a serious movie yeah we're not talking about jim but uh yeah poltergeist the remake i will see it at some point but i'm i have no rush to see it well i just want to kind of ask you guys if you remember a couple of movies there was a movie called robots with robin williams animated film do you guys remember that one i do remember yes. that how about Inkheart? do you remember that one no with Brendan no. Fraser, I remember that yes, one. Yes, yeah. And, um, well, Oz the Great and Powerful with James Franco, I'm sure that you guys remember true. that one. And then there was a musical version of Shrek that was out on Broadway a few years ago. I don't know if you guys remember, happen to remember when that was happening. I do not. These are no, all really. the credits for the writer of Poltergeist. Oh, I was wondering. <laughs> oh, why, I was wondering why you were asking about these, these movies, man. Do you remember? Do you remember Monster House? There was uh, there was another one called City of Ember. Those are the directing credits for the guy who's directing the film. So why the writer and director 
director of these movies. I mean, the guy who directed this movie has done three features, Poltergeist being one of them, City of Ember, and Monster House. And the other guy, more of a playwright and definitely more of a animated feature type guy. Why they're writing Poltergeist? I'm not really sure. So, yeah. Uh, the trailer makes it just look like another Insidious or what was that one with Lily Taylor a couple of years ago? Like those kind of movies. Conjuring. Yes. And it's just mm. like, yeah, did it happen to have like the clown in the tree? And they're just like, hey, we might as well just call this thing Poltergeist. Gem is truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. <laughs> Outrageously bad. <sighs> why? He's already why got his he... tickets. There's just no point. Uh, I think Mike summed it up with his whole, uh, you know, like going into the, the credits. Why? Of... I, I, I think the, que- yeah. the question you're asking is, what's the point? Yeah. And, and I think, um, like, okay, Sean Cunningham did not start out doing slasher films and Friday the 13th was still classic. The thing is, he was a fairly new filmmaker and was experimenting with different things. When it comes to the this poltergeist thing, these are people who were, were predominantly veterans of, of like family animated features and were getting them to do a remake of one of the most classic, amazingly scary horror films of, of all time. And at the risk of sounding like a stereotypical film snob who hates remakes, fuck this remake. I, I, I just want to say there is one criticism that's being leveled at the remake that I will not allow people to leave unanswered. I can't even count how many horror websites and horror fans say, oh, it's PG-13, it's going to suck. Guys, that's remember not the why originals. it's going to suck. You re- yeah. Remember the original's PG, right? This yeah. technically has a harder rating than the original. So the whole bitching that it's PG-13, that one I'll defend the movie on. It's going to suck because it's going to suck, not because of its ratings. When the TV goes off in your house, are they here? Definitely. I love that you can't even have that central conceit of the television going to static after the national anthem is played. It should be, because... it should be an infomercial now that comes on <laughs> and causes the ghosts. <laughs> it's an infomercial with Kane there, like trying to sell some, you know, corn pone recipe or something. Yeah. I got grits for you, little child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can chop up these vegetables real good. <laughs> I'm going to make you some bacon. These pigs are going to die. Actually, how scary would it be if the ghost of Billy Mays came to haunt you? Oh, shit. My house would be as clean as you could believe, man. <laughs> I'm Billy Mays, and I'm here to haunt your house. Billy Mays would teach you how to get ectoplasm out of your electronics. Ah. Absolutely. Mike, where can people find you if they want to if they want to wait till the national anthem's over? Come on over to projection-booth.com, and we've got a weekly show there that people can download if they want. And uh, yeah, hopefully they like it. Peter, for the official Caroline uh, drinking game, uh, yeah. you can go to Twitter at Cinematica, uh, Facebook the Cinematicus, YouTube the Cinematicus, and once the site is updated. 1201beyond.com for all your uh, actually car- actually I'm all your correct, Caroline correct, drinking game needs. I'm going to correct you on that. Your stuff has already been added to the site, even though we don't relaunch for another two weeks. Awesome! So your I'm, stuff has already, already popped up there. Kick ass! So yes, you can now officially find the Cinemasochist on 1201beyond.com and uh, 
promote the help keep help keep the uh, product promoted. Get yourself a Radio Drome T-shirt and uh, pretty soon Cinemasticus T-shirts and other show T-shirts. Just go go spend some money. God damn it! I need money bad. Cecil, un- unfortunately, you are the you are the mirror vote here, and Trish does not love you. But where can people oh, find no. you anyway? <laughs> uh, I'll be hanging out with Scott at uh, escapistmagazine.com as well as goodbadflicks.com and geekjuicemedia.com. You can find me where you're looking at on the spiritual realm at 1201beyond.com and you can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Try and have a good night, guys. And remember, if the dog is freaking out over the bed after you've smoked dope and your daughter walks in on you, something's weird. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's another thing i guarantee the remake will not have the parents smoking weed yeah how did we not we didn't cover that i i, I that was something i wanted to mention but didn't the fact that the parents are very casual and kind of more down to earth than usual stick up the ass parents that you see in horror flicks
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.